All right, with all that said, look at Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, for us to really understand this passage, we need to understand what Matthew is doing in the entire gospel. If you'll flip back a page or so and look at Matthew 1.1, Matthew at the very beginning uh, tells us exactly what his objective is. He's introducing Jesus, and he isn't subtle or coy. He comes right out of the gate with astounding claims about Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew's audience were Jewish, and so they were, they were steeped in the Old Testament. When they immediately would begin to read Matthew, their minds would immediately go and see the connection with the book of Genesis. Now, here in Matthew, the Greek translates the uh, genealogy, well, that's really very similar language to what happens in Genesis. Typically in our English translations, it's the generations of. But it's the same, it's the same thing. They, they would have immediately thought, oh, Matthew's kind of mimicking Genesis. And then he gives three titles to Jesus. Now, the first one is the Christ. Now, oftentimes we in modern day evangelicalism, we think Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. It's a title. It's Greek for Messiah. So Matthew is saying to his Jewish audience, look, I'm mimicking Genesis, and I'm giving titles to Jesus. And the first one is Messiah, the promised one, the expected one. The second title is Son of David. Now again, for the Jewish mind, David was the uh, best king and so Jesus, being the son of David, 
Matthew's communicating that not only is Jesus Messiah, but he's king. And then this third title, son of Abraham. Well, Abraham was the father of the Israeli nation. Uh, He was the one that God called. And so uh, anybody of importance is a son of Abraham. So we have Matthew immediately, right out of the gate, giving these initial titles to Jesus, introducing Jesus to who we are. Matthew continues in the next few chapters, and he gives us some elucidating facts about who Jesus is um, and what Jesus is all about. He's preparing us for what Jesus will do. Now, if you'll look at Matthew 4, 17, we have a shift in Matthew's focus. Matthew 4, 17 says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first bit of Matthew is Jesus' birth and then preparation for what he's entering into right here in 417, Jesus' public ministry, his proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Matthew continues this public ministry all the way through until Matthew 16, verse 21. Now we're going to see some repetitive language. In verse 21, we read of chapter 16, from that time Jesus began, see the repetitive language there? We're now moving into a, a different section. To show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So there's 417 through 1620 is his public ministry. Then he shifts into preparing the disciples for his death and resurrection. Now, our text this morning is in that section of Matthew where Matthew is preparing us He's introducing to us who Jesus is before his public ministry begins. So one of the things that we need to understand is that this very familiar text of the temptation of Christ, um, oftentimes the familiarity that we have with it can, can limit us or in a more negative sense, maybe trap us to a particular understanding that maybe isn't all that we ought to know about this text. Now, I have a suspicion, and so I ran a very unscientific... uh, uh, I asked a bunch of people this week, when you think of the temptation of Christ, what do you think of? And 100% of the responses were, we need to use God's Word to defend against temptation from Satan. And by all means, that is right, true, and accurate, and it's right there in the text. But I don't think that is the primary idea that God is communicating to us through the hand of Matthew. I think the primary thing that God is communicating to us through the hand of Matthew is a contrast between Adam, the first Adam, and Jesus, 
the last Adam. Now, that language I'm using is very biblical language, first Adam and last Adam. Let me, let me try and demonstrate that and, and help you understand it. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to read two verses out of that chapter. Verse 22 says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we've got this language of in Adam and in Christ. In that same chapter, down in verse 45, we read this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam and the last Adam. That last Adam is Jesus. So we've got two men, Adam and Christ, who are being contrasted in our text this morning. Now, to understand what, what God is communicating to us through the hand of Matthew, we really have to go back to Genesis. Remember, Matthew is mimicking Genesis. The Jews, would, when they read this, would have immediately thought of Genesis. Well, back in Genesis 3, we find sin entering God's good creation at the hands of humanity. And as a result, all humanity is born in Adam. Adam is our representative head. We follow Adam. We all sin. We all trust our own perspective and abandoned, ab abandon God's uh, truth and do things our own way. Now God, all the way back in Genesis 2, in, in Genesis 3, um, two, he announces that he understands the plight of where sinful man is at. And he is going to send a seed. He's going to send a person who will save us from the wrath that we have earned by our sin. So Matthew has clearly indicated at the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is this promised person and now, in chapter 4, he's contrasting Jesus and Adam. He's contrasting the first Adam and the last Adam. I believe what God, through Matthew, is primarily telling us is that we are to trust Jesus because Jesus fulfilled where Adam failed. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to bring out four aspects of this contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. Before the first Adam who failed and the last Adam, Jesus, who fulfilled. So let's dig into this and look here. The first contrast that Matthew makes in chapter 4 is this. God leads Jesus to be tempted by Satan. Look at the text. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now that then tells us we need to keep in mind what just happened in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the baptism of Jesus. The dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, descends. And there's a voice from heaven that says, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So that has just occurred. There's been this divine proclamation from heaven. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one. Jesus is who I promised I would send so long ago. But then we see the Holy Spirit leading Jesus toward temptation by Satan. Now in the Genesis account, Adam and Eve are in the garden. There's no mention, there's nothing that says that God led them toward temptation. The temptation happens. Now we understand by what God has revealed in His Word that God is sovereign, that He is uh, orchestrating all things that happen. And so even that temptation in the garden is within His sovereign purview. We also know from James 1.13 that God tempts no one. It's Satan that did the tempting. But here we see a contrast. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus toward temptation by Satan. Why? Why is God leading Jesus toward this temptation? Well, from one perspective, it certainly indicates that there is a divine purpose to what we're reading here in Matthew 4. But I think even, even more than that is it's an indication of God's great love for His people. See, God understands that unless He acts to solve this problem of sin, His people are doomed. And His great love for His people means that He's going to solve this problem that humanity cannot solve. This really fits in line with what God reveals all the way back in Genesis 3. Sin has entered. God does what? He goes and He finds Adam and Eve. He seeks them out. And then He, he is speaking to them and, and giving some consequences. And buried in there, in His, um, in his consequence to Satan, is Genesis 3.15. It says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, an individual, a singular he, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a mortal blow. God is promising. That's the first hint of the gospel right there in Genesis 3. God is going to send someone who will conquer Satan, conquer sin, resolve this whole problem. Jesus must face the temptation like Adam and Eve to be our last Adam, to be our representative head, to be the one who solves our problem. God is leading Jesus toward the temptation with Satan as a clear sign of His great love for His people. Do you ever have trouble recognizing God's great love for His people? It's everywhere. It's right there in this text when we read the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit. 
He's communicating His great love for His people. We ought to have eyes that see God consistently communicating to us through all facets of life His commitment to His people, His love for His people, His care for His people. Well, that's the first contrast. Jesus is led toward temptation by God. The second thing we see is that Jesus' situation was much more severe than Adam's. Again, look back at the text. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, the wilderness, what does that mean? What's being communicated to us there? Well, the wilderness is a desert area. It's barren, it's lonely, it's dangerous, it's scarce. And not only was Jesus in the wilderness, not only was he in a location that had scarcity and it was dangerous and it was barren, but he's fasting. He's gone 40 days and 40 nights without food. You can imagine, the body would be weak. We'll contrast that with a moment. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. The garden was a place designed and built by God for His human creatures. I really think the way that we ought to understand the garden was that it was a temple garden. Not only was it built and designed by God specifically for His creatures, it was full of provision, everything that they would need. They had all the trees of the garden for food. Pluck it and eat it. But not only was it designed and built by God, not only was it full of provision, but it's the very place where God met with, walked with, talked with Adam and Eve. The garden was full and rich and ultimately the perfect setting for Adam and Eve and it's where they interacted with God. You know, you think about it, we think our modern houses are quite amazing. I don't think they stack up at all to the garden. I suspect we would be immensely blown away by the garden. So look at this contrast. Adam and Eve in a place designed and built for them where they walk and talk with God and all their needs are met. And then Jesus in a wilderness, in a lonely, dangerous, barren, scarce place and he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. His situation was much more severe. I think, I think one of the things that God is communicating by that is again his great love for his people. He wants to make sure we understand nothing, no difficulty, no problem, nothing that sin has brought about is going to stop this God from saving His people. So God leads Jesus toward the temptation by Satan. 
Jesus' situation is much more severe. But then look at this third contrast. Jesus fulfills his role by resisting temptation where Adam failed. We won't read it again, but from verse 3 through 10, you've got three scenes, three times Satan tempts Jesus. In the garden, one and done. Satan uses the same strategy. Back in the garden, he starts out with this little phrase, did God actually say? What's he doing? Well, he's trying to sow some doubt, question some things. Then he he moves to his other strategy, which he just outright lies. You will not surely die. He uses that strategy. Adam and Eve fail after one, one temptation. We read in Genesis 3, 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. God said, nah, don't believe it. I see, I believe, I think, I perceive. Yeah, I'll trust myself. And now all of a sudden, we're all in Adam We're all ruined by sin. Satan sowed some doubt, lied about God's Word regarding the consequences of disobeying, and Adam and Eve trusted in their own perspective instead of God's Word. Well, now think about Jesus. Remember, He's in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan comes to Him and uses the same strategy. You know, the first temptation has to do with making bread out of stones, and there's nothing sinful about Jesus uh, making bread out of stones. He goes and does miraculous things later on. The issue is Satan, again, is trying to sow some doubt. Remember, he's just been baptized, and there's been this divine proclamation, this is my son, my beloved son, I'm pleased with him. This is the one that I've promised. This is the one that I said I would send. And what does Satan do? He comes to him in the wilderness, hungry, and he says, if you are the Son of God. Now what's implied in all that? If you're really the Son of God, why are you in the wilderness? If you're really the Son of God, why are you so hungry? Why is God not providing for you? Why is God not caring for you? Why is God not loving you? And Jesus quotes the word of God and resists the temptation. So Satan Satan comes about him again a second time, takes him to a high place on the temple, and he says, um, again, he does the same thing, if you're the son of God. But this time Satan quotes Scripture. You know, if you're the Son of God, God has said that He's going to protect you. He's not going to let anything bad happen to you. Why don't you go ahead and jump off this and He'll protect you and everybody will look and go, wow, Jesus must be somebody important. Let's, let's worship God. It'll be great. So why don't, if you're the Son of God, why don't you just presume on God and put Him to the test? So Jesus again resists. He quotes the Word of God. And so Satan comes at him a third time. 
Now this time Satan drops all the subtlety and everything and he just outright says, look, I know you've got a mission. Your mission is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. But I'll tell you what, there's a much more efficient way that we can make this happen. You just bow down and worship me and I'll relinquish it all to you. We'll be done. Let's get this done. Let's be much more efficient. It's a much better plan than God's got. And then Jesus says, I want you to actually look at this in verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Let me ask you some questions. Do you trust God's Word? When you're hungry, do you trust God's Word? When you got a difficult report from the doctor, do you trust God's Word? When you're suffering, do you trust God's Word? When your children, young, teenagers, adult children, when they disappoint you, do you trust God's Word? When things are difficult in your marriage, in your family, in your work, in your business, do you trust God's Word? May all of us follow our Savior's example and rely upon and trust in and recall God's Word. Jesus defeats Satan. He fulfills His role and becomes our last Adam. He becomes our hero. He does what we cannot. Okay, so we see that God led Jesus to be tempted by Satan. We see that Jesus' situation was much more severe than in the garden. We see that Jesus fulfills the role that Adam failed. And lastly, we see that Satan submits to Jesus' command. I love this last verse of our text. So we just have in verse 10, Jesus responds to that third temptation and he says, Be gone, Satan. And then look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan submits to the command of Jesus. Jesus demonstrates his authority, his power, and his success over Satan with the command. And Satan demonstrates his defeat and submission by obeying the command. Jesus, our last Adam, our representative head, the Messiah, the King, He's won. He's done it. He's fulfilled where Adam failed. I really think right there in verse 11, there's a foreshadowing to everything else that we find out uh, in, in the Gospels. It's a foreshadowing to the cross. Satan left him. Jesus commands, Satan obeys. He's done. When Satan, this great accuser, sends fiery darts at you, attempting to depress you, defeat you, 
dissuade you from the hope of God found in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Simply cling to what Jesus said. Be gone, Satan. Trust being in Christ, our representative head. Now in closing, I want to ask a question. All of us are born in Adam. We follow Adam. We prove that by our own lives because we all have sinned and rebelled against God and His Word and have earned His wrath and deserve His wrath. We're all in Adam. But God because of His great love, has sent Jesus to be our Savior and redeem us from sin and death by living a perfect life and then dying on the cross in our place. So my question is, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? In Christ is simply shorthand, biblical shorthand for recognizing your sin and crying out to God and trusting in God's provision of Christ for forgiveness of sins. That's all being in Christ is. Everybody in this room or under the sound of my voice, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's only two choices. That's what God has revealed to us. If you're under the sound of my voice and you're in Adam, I plead with you. Receive the gift that God has wrought through Christ. Cry out to God and say, I know I've sinned and I trust Christ. I am in Christ. I trust His work to provide forgiveness for me. If you're already in Christ, then I want to remind you of your standing. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ, go, and in response to such great love, go and live a life of obedience, not to earn favor with God, but in response to the favor He's granted you through Christ. Father, we bow before You and just say thank You. Father, we have sinned, we have rebelled, we have all been born in Adam, and yet You, in Your great love, You promised and You fulfilled that promise. You promised You would save us, and You have sent Christ, and He has defeated Satan. He has resisted temptation. And now in Christ, and in Christ alone, we can boldly become, come before Your throne. We can, we can be forgiven, and we can have a relationship with You. Father, my prayer is that anyone that is simply in Adam, that You will open their eyes and open their ears and have them cry out and trust in Christ. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.